Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Around the Coin. Today I interviewed Michael Weiss, the co-founder and president of Yield Street, the only multi-asset alternative investment platform for retail investors. As a seasoned alternative investments expert, Michael has created access to investments in art, real estate, private credit, business credit, litigation, marine financing, structured notes, and more. At Yield Street, the company's investment strategy is working. They have over 325,000 members in the platform with more than $2.2 billion invested and a billion return to investment investors. He has previously held positions in finance spanning from Soli Capital, American Medical Concierge. Previously, Michael was VP at a New York-based credit hedge fund with over $1.2 billion in management. Michael is incredibly knowledgeable about investing and investing strategies. We talked a lot about what Yield Street is doing conceptually, the changes in government regulation in payments over the last 10 years that have created this opportunity, how he personally got into it, and what he sees as the future for regulation, the future of investment, the future of consolidation, and fair market play in investing. So a lot of interesting topics we touched on. Michael's a very articulate speaker and careful thinker, which I really appreciated. And I very much enjoyed this conversation. And I hope you do as well. Today's show is sponsored by Otter Labs at HireOtter.com. You can check out a great option if you're trying to hire developers for your startup. Otter Labs specializes in placing developers with existing tech companies The tech companies generally are located in North America, and Otter has a community of over 1,200 developers down in South America, which is nice because they're on the same time zone. They're also very English fluent and very tech savvy. With every company going remote, it's an awesome opportunity to work with South American developers, hence the mission at Otter Labs. So without further ado, here is Michael Weiss. Awesome. So, Michael, we're uh, diving in. Thanks for jumping on the show today. Why, why don't we kick this off with uh, a little intro? Do you want to describe what you're working on and what your ambition is with the company? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, we started Yield Street in 2015, so a uh, little bit under seven years ago. And we started Yield Street with a mission to help millions of people get on a road to financial independence. And, you know, the reason that Melinda and I became really passionate about the idea was because at the end of the day, income inequality was widening, right? And the, and the reality is that making money was really controlled by such a small group of folks and the 60-40 model is dead. And so how do you really help people get ahead and where is smart money going? And if you take a look at where capital allocation has gone over the years, pensions and endowments have moved up to 60 plus percent of their money into the private markets. And that's where the action is. And so how do you help the everyday investor enhance their portfolio um, when the market and the 60-40 model doesn't work? What's the 60 more, what is that model? What's the 60-40 model? So 
I feel like, you know, many of us who, who went to school a little while back, they used to tell us very simple, you know, bonds and equities. That's really how you got to think about balancing your portfolio. And it was 40% in bonds, right, to generate fixed income and 60% in equities to get growth. And the thought process behind that was fairly simple. Companies that are somewhat successful ultimately go public. They access money in the public markets. They use that money to grow the business. And you as a shareholder are going to get into Walmart and Microsoft and Apple and you know all these great companies, General Electric and Ford. And um, over time, as you look to you know generate passive income and retire, your bonds are going to provide that consistency of payments, of, of debt payments, of passive income. And your stocks are going to do great, and some are going to fail, and some are going to do amazing. And on average, you're going to have this large growth portfolio. Um, makes a ton of sense, right? Here's the problem. Private equity took off like crazy and kept all these great companies that would have otherwise probably gone public, kept them private. And so where are you getting that growth now? Not in the public markets. And by the time they come to the public markets, they're coming much later because they've used private capital from private equity and venture capital funds to grow those businesses. So you used to buy that company when it was a billion-dollar valuation. Now you're only going to see it at $30 billion or $20 billion. And so someone else is making all that money on the way up, and it isn't us. And as far as the bond market is concerned, with you know interest rates being under 1% in the 10-year, there really isn't a whole lot of coupon to generate anymore. And so where do I get passive income and, and you know, where am I going to see growth? Well, I'll tell you this, the rich folks and institutions are getting in the private markets. They're invested in private credit funds and they're invested in private equity and venture capital funds. And that's how the world goes around. And what we try to figure out is how do we help millions of Americans and ultimately folks internationally as well get on a road to financial independence. Interesting. And what's the time frame that this shift has happened where private equity has come in and really kind of saturated that IPO range company like Series D, Series E? Is that the last two, three years or 10 years? No, it's probably, um, I'm going to say it's inside 20 years. I would say, you know, definitely in the last 10 years, you've already seen massive, massive growth, right? Even as far back as 15 years ago. I think the public eye is starting to, to learn about it more over the last five years. And that's really a confluence of events, including just like, you know, the information that's available to us through social media and online. It's just we're processing so much more information so much more rapidly that we start to know these things, receive these things more. Is this a structural change in terms of, say, uh, government, SEC, uh, legal changes, allowing people to invest in companies uh, earlier? I know there's a accredited investor qualification that people have to meet if they're going to invest in private companies. But are there other changes that have significantly impacted this where people can get into private markets where they couldn't have before? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So Listen, there's a lot of things happening, like if you want to think about like broader macro trends, right? And I think there there's some things that are super exciting. So one is, and I'm sure we'll get into a discussion as to like, okay, so 60-40 is changing. Michael says, modernize your portfolio. What does that mean? How do I do it? Like, what are the opportunities that exist out there? What's the difference between real estate investing, alts, crypto, NFTs, like just how, how do I as a consumer sort of process all that? What does that mean to me? The other part is like, why is this all happening so fast? Is it technology adoption? Is it regulatory? Like going to, going to your question. Um, so I think there's a lot of exciting things to talk about. So I'll start with like a big one, right? So a big one is there's $70 trillion moving from baby boomers to the next generation. $70 trillion over the next 10 years, okay? We behave differently than our parents did. And so the guy from Charles Schwab calling you and saying, hey, Mike, I want to talk to you about, you know, what your financial planning is and what your investments are that, um, you know, let's go for a round of golf. You're going to be like, hey, tell Chuck to call my dad. Like, I'm good. We're not going yeah, for no, a golf. Not interesting. So where does that money go? And, and how do folks change their investment behavior? Right? I think that's a really important question. And $70 trillion is a ton of money. 
And do you see, and so, do you see generally that the, it, instead of the, you know, cold call or phone call to take out to a round of golf, now it's uh, user interface design on software, simplicity, speed. Um, I'm thinking these are kind of anecdotally what I would value, where it's like, if a company raises a lot of money, if they seem trustworthy, if they have a great brand and they're easy to use and they're cheap, like I, I would just use that immediately. If anyone calls me, I take that as a sign that they're probably overpriced because they're hiring the salesperson to call me. If they have a physical office, they're probably inflated and a little bit old school. Are those, am I, am I stumbling across the right ways that people make these decisions as it shifts from baby boomers to more millennial? We're all people and um, we all have different desires and we like to interact differently. And so you're not going to be right and you're not going to be wrong, right? Um, there are going to be folks that have that perspective and they're going to they're going to be people that want a phone call. They're going to be people that build and develop trust by being able to have a conversation. There are people that want to be incredibly passive and say, hey, you know, we'd love for you to make the investment decisions for us. There are people that are going to say, I want to know more about where my money is going. I'm the one who made the money. Like, I'm not, I think like, you know, that's another element, which is, I feel like in many ways, sort of the financial advisor world, private wealth management world in a respectful way has sort of used the notion of you're too stupid to make financial decisions. Leave that to us, the professionals. I think our generation is more about like, no, I'm not too stupid. I'm young. I'm successful. I'm making money. I read. I'm educated. I'm willing to learn. Like, give me transparency. Give me the information. I'll make the decision myself. And so the continuum of, of what people want is, is pretty wide. And so I, I don't want to agree with you and say that, yes, that's exactly what people are going after because I don't think that's true. But I think that, you know, there's a whole host of opportunities. I think what's happening more broadly is, you know, people are asking themselves the following question in, in whichever way, you know, they, they translate it. Does my money work as hard for me as I do it? Like, that's a simple question that's really powerful. So I spend 12, 14, 15 hours a day working. Is my money working for me every day, all day? Am I earning interest? Am I growing that investment? If the answer is no, something's wrong. And so we're all sort of trying to understand what could we do to make our money more powerful. Right. And I think for too long, we've been locked out as consumers. Locked out of the potential high return investment opportunities? Just general, like, you know, where money is made, we haven't been getting the calls, right? It's the large private equity shops, the investment houses, the ultra wealthy. And I think today what we understand is that technology is a great equalizer. And so fractionalization of opportunities, right? So being able to take a $100 million deal and saying, hey, Michael, you could invest $1,000, that's powerful. It didn't work before. It didn't work because yeah. technology didn't exist. It didn't work because the Jobs Act didn't come out. It didn't work because we weren't using technology or the internet as much as we do today. And so from a marketing perspective, you couldn't be found. And so you have all these things that have come together from a shift in behavior in consumers, number one, technology adoption moving faster than ever. Think about what COVID did. Like my dad, who probably used to walk around most of the time with cash and go to the bank every week, didn't do it for 18 months and had to figure out how to live life without, you know, that experience. So adoption went through the roof. Um, you have the Jobs Act that came out about 2014, changing general solicitation, how we market to people. You have consumers using Instagrams, you know, Facebook, Google, internet exponentially more than we did 10 years ago, which means that marketing firms could target you, could find you, could know who to talk to in an affordable way. And so spending time getting the investor for 1,000, 5,000, 50,000, 100,000 used to not be economically viable. Today it is. And so as you start to bring all these components together, like that's what fuels a success for a business like Guild Street, which in the last, you know, six plus years has done two and a half billion dollars of investments. And just a couple of weeks ago, we finished up our Series C of 150 million in new capital. So like these are some of the things that are that are making the success happen. And what's the user experience like on Yield Street? So targeted towards consumers? 
they would walk me through like what would be a typical customer experience um for a new user sign up yeah yeah we should almost like do it that would have been fun um well i wish we could record it live i don't know if i could record the screen but uh what uh, i'd probably get shot from compliance seven ways (laughs) i I wouldn't make it in the door tomorrow morning um Listen, the experience I think is it's super easy. It's super engaging. You go online, sign up, quick couple forms that you would experience anywhere else. And we're going to try and do our best to get to know you if you let us. If you don't and you want to just go on your own, you're going to go look at different investment opportunities. You're going to have four opportunities, okay? Number one is individual investment opportunities. So I'm a person who wants to pick the investments that I make and I want to build my own portfolio. So I want to look at that real estate deal. I want to look at that art finance investment. I want to look at that, you know, third party investment manager. So like a Avenue Capital or, a, you know, aviation leasing fund or GP stakes business, whatever. Um, and the next is I'm a thematic investor. I want exposure to real estate or, or art or legal finance, but I don't want to pick my individual investments. And so Yield Street will curate a fund that has a series of diversified investments that we will then offer you. And so we'll take five real estate deals, chop them up, put 20% of each deal in, and now you have a fund that's got five deals across real estate. So you feel like you've gotten real estate exposure. It's somewhat passive and nicely diversified. The third product is, hey, love what Yield Street's doing, really want access to third-party fund managers. And so, like, can you get me into those, like, multi-billion dollar asset managers? And so what Yield Street does is we look for some of the best managers that we like. We make an investment in them, let's say $50 million. And then we create a fund that has, in part, that LP interest. And now you can come into that fund for a much smaller amount and get indirectly large exposure to sort of those multi-billion dollar managers. And the fourth is someone who says, hey, I love all of this, want to be super passive. Do you have a vehicle that tries to take a little bit of everything Yield Street does so I could be broadly diversified across the platform? And so those are the four types of investments that you'll see on our platform at any time. What's really exciting about Yield Street, I would say, I'll break it down to two things, unique assets and unique access. Yeah. And so you can invest in shipping, art, legal finance, consumer loans, commercial loans, small business lending, real estate, um, single family rentals, or all of these different alternative investment strategies at Yield Street. And, and people coming into this would be, I would imagine, fairly sophisticated investors that want more granularity and access to different types of deals and investments. Are they, do you see people coming in? I, I, I'm not sure if you can parse out like performance of different investors, but I would imagine if you're choosing, you know, art as a category or single family homes as a category, you, you have some rationale, some story that you're telling yourself as to why you think this sector would be more likely to grow. Uh, are people quantitative? I mean, do people come in with, uh, you know, data to try to assess trends or is it for the most part people are just kind of ballparking it and i know it's tough to tell for the most part but would your average investor now be you know how do people choose i guess is what i'm boiling down to because all those categories sound exciting um and i could see it being overwhelming or just difficult to make a decision as to how to allocate that It's a great question. Um, 70% of our investors have five or more investments. Sorry. Yeah, so people... That's not the case. Oh. 70% of our investors have one or more. 40% have five or more. Okay? Got it. And I'll explain to you why. In 2016, 2017 timeframe... Only 6% of retail investors had alternative investments in the portfolio, and the average age was 65 years old. Wow. Today, our average age is 40, which means that we're helping people generate compounding returns for 25 years more than they historically had the opportunity to. Like, that's like 
really game-changing, right? That's, that's making a difference in your life. Why people pick different investments, I think, is largely because they're interested, they're intrigued. It's different access. It's something they might not have in their portfolio. I think that you know people do spend a lot of time on Yield Street to understand why we invest in the things that we have invested in, right? And so our approval rate historically has been sub 10%. And so now the question is like, where should I build my portfolio? And so if you're a real estate professional in one way or another, you may not actually want to invest in the real estate sector because you think you're overexposed to real estate. Um, If you're really excited about art, but to you, investing in art has not been attainable because you think that you need to spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to buy blue chip art, this is a really interesting way to get exposure to an asset class that has low correlation to the market. Um, if you're reading the news over the last two years, you've probably read a number of articles that America cannot meet housing demand for the next five plus years. And so single family rentals is like, hey, that's really interesting because we can't build enough homes to service people. I think that's going to make sense. Then COVID hits and the whole world tries to move out to single family homes. And you're like, okay, I want to, I definitely want to be there. And so I think that the ultimate answer to building the right portfolio is to be appropriately diversified across the board. How and why people pick certain things first is like a whole different discussion. Totally. Right? Like we could drill yeah. down. That's got to be laced with uh, individual psychology and excitement about different areas. And I, I can't imagine that you would tell me that it's a science, right? It's, it's in large part for, especially for individuals, it's gotta be, Hey, I find you might have a thesis like, you know, surely after COVID, but even prior to, if there's a development shortage on housing, to your point, it's like, it makes sense to, to go into single family homes. I always find, I, I find it difficult personally to, to think about this because how, even if that say take the take that case right say America can't meet the needs of the development for houses, how is it? How can I know or how can I even think that that I have information that other people don't? Because by the time I read that article on you know whatever mainstream media article it is, everybody else has access to that same information and they're likely thinking the same things. And so how would I even know if this is overpriced or underpriced? I. I feel like it, 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 it's a information dissemination question is like, okay, am I reading a news site or do I have access to something that other people don't? And if it's not that, what else could it possibly be? You know, you're other than just, I think in crypto, say for instance, people got into it earlier and just by means of being in it earlier, they had access to information that other people didn't, but it's not as if they generally there is not as if those walls exist, you know, I would say in the private world, as opposed to the public markets, there is that wall, you know, like VCs get access to deals and information other people don't. And so their returns are different. I don't know if you have a reaction to all that, but I'm curious. I'm going to pick up on your last nugget. So if you want to get the exposure to the best venture investment opportunities, how do you think you do it as an individual? You have to be accredited, I believe, even to invest in, say, like an AngelList syndicate. But now, cr- crowdfunding sites, I mean, AngelList is one of them. Well, you guys would be another. No, no, no. You're getting too technical. Let's go. Let's pick up on where you were before, right? You were basically saying, like, hey, by the time I read something, everyone else knows about it. Or, like, take venture capital, for example, the biggest fund managers and the biggest funds are going to get the best access to the best deal flow, right? So I asked you, okay, so if I want to invest in venture, then how do I get access to the best deal flow? I don't know. Would you become an LP, invest in the venture capital firm? Exactly. So the question becomes, how do I get unique assets and how do I get unique access? Your $10,000 investment is never going to, I shouldn't say never, is statistically not going to outperform super smart folks who have armies of people that they pay millions of dollars for to get access to the best deals. And so the question becomes like, how do I get aligned with those folks? Mm. 
that's that's the point, right? Right. right. And so what Yield Street is able to do is create equality with the masses. So wait. So I now go in and that's, to the biggest fund managers. Yeah. Or I go to the hundred million dollar deal, and I'm like, very simply put, hey, my name is Michael. I run Yield Street. I got three hundred plus thousand members here. We love what you're doing. We want to do this deal for a hundred million bucks. We do the deal. Then I turn around the other side and I say, hey, Mike and all your friends, you can come in for a thousand or five thousand or a hundred thousand a person. Our technology makes the experience seamless. Whatever number is right for you, go ahead as long as you qualify. So when you say the deal, you mean that the you you would invest in the venture capital firm. So you'd become an LP. Yield Street would become an LP or alongside. Yeah. So across. Across every one of our opportunities, there's typically an originator. So in our single family rental business, we got into the business in 2019 because we saw and understood that thesis to be true. And so we didn't say, oh, we're going to go buy individual homes around the country and try to figure this out ourselves. We looked around and we said, who are the big players in this space? Who's got a good thesis? Who's in the right market? We wanted to be in the Southeast for a host of reasons. Turns out we ended up being super lucky, you might say, or maybe it was strategic or both, that COVID came and people ran to Florida and Florida reacted in a way that embraced, you know, more people moving down and whatnot. And um, the partner that, you know, we essentially backed financially did incredibly well. And so the key for us at Yield Street is picking the right originators and picking the right partners to provide that capital to. Interesting. Okay. So there's almost like two layers of abstraction might not be the white word, but Yield Street owns a discretionary uh, path to capital. So you're you're choosing the real estate company that you're going to offer to your users, same as you'd be choosing the VC firm that, that users would have access to. And part of that is your filtration because there's is just an overwhelming, I mean, there's just an overwhelming number of deals. And so there's VCs that come and filter those deals for their, their investors, their LPs. But then even then there's so many VC firms, how could someone know where to go? And that's, that layer is Yield Street. So Yield Street comes in, finds VC firms that you really like, and then offer that investment to your users. Is that the right way of saying it? Sure. I think most importantly, it's it's creating an incredible curated experience for the user, right? So we get to know Mike and we say, Mike, we're going to help you build an incredible portfolio. It's going to be diversified across risk reward, across income and growth. We're going to try and hit as many strategies as we can. And we're going to give you the opportunity to go and pick you know, how you want to build that portfolio. And we're going to make it enjoyable. We're going to make it transparent. We're going to make it um, digitally native and right at your fingertips. I love it. Uh, walk me through the story of Yield Street. So you are kicking it in 2014. It, were you, uh, was it a spark where you're like, oh, this is this is the model, this is the brand and direction? Or was it kind of like uh, slowly building bricks in the house so you're like, oh, this is what we're doing. Um, I'm curious what that origin story looks like. So there's always a spark, you know, that, that that sort of gets you lit up and excited about an opportunity. But I think what I've learned in the difference in the ideas that I've executed on and that have worked in life and those that haven't is that the ones that were just a spark really never went anywhere. It was the spark that sort of allowed you to realize that there were a number of other underlying currents that you were somehow connected to, whether an experience or emotionally, that sort of brought it together. And what I mean by that is, well, you know, as it relates to the Yield Street story. So in 2014, um, I'm chugging along. I'm running a specialty finance fund. Um, I was actively investing in sort of esoteric stuff, I would say. My biggest um, asset class was legal finance. I started that in 2009. Uh, it was a really interesting area of investing that few people had uh, had known about or had been looking at at the time. Um, I was fortunate to do really well quickly and at a young age. Uh, initially, when I started my fund, I was backed by high net worth individuals, so one to five million dollar checks. And after a couple of years, 
of sort of putting up really exciting returns. The deal sizes got bigger and my waist got bigger and bigger because I was having way too many lunches and dinners and it just wasn't possible anymore. Um, and on the other side of that is honestly, I, I wasn't enjoying that part of it. Um, where Michael Weiss always got excited was sort of the intellectual horsepower required to sort of figure out an opportunity where the alpha is starting a new asset class, getting through a difficult deal and sort of trying to figure out if we all win. And where I started spending 30, 40% of my time was raising capital. And ultimately what happened was I needed $108 million. I did the math on the back of an envelope and realized that there's just no way I'm going to do this with one to $5 million checks. I went out to the institutional world. I raised the capital. I got retraded twice. The experience sucked. They were somewhat dishonest in some cases. Um, and it just felt disingenuous. But I got it done. I felt great. Here's my nine-figure big check. I'm off to the races. Over the next couple of weeks, all my existing investors who I've made a ton of money for over the last number of years are starting to like give me a little bit of a cold shoulder and be frustrated. And I'm like, what's, what's going on, guys? And the sort of feeling was like, hey, you kicked us to the curb because you went after institutional money. And I was like, what do you mean? So I will go out for lunch with one of my really close investors. And I'm like, hey, like, what's up with the cold shoulder? And he's like, well, what am I supposed to do now? You know, I've invested in this relationship with you. I backed you since you started. And, you know, the family deploys a lot of capital with you. And, you know, what should we do now? And Mike, I, I kid you not, I never thought about that. Like, I don't know. That seems like rich people problems. What do you mean you don't know what to de- how to deploy your capital? Like, of course you do. You have a million options. What it allowed me to realize is what the system was broken for both of us. I was spending way too much time raising capital and was being highly inefficient when I should be spending more of my time doing these great investments. And you're telling me that even the people with the best access have a highly fragmented experience and can't get the right experience or the right access. Like, that makes no sense Hmm. in my mind. And, you know, so that was one experience. Wait, wait, can I ask you a point of clarification on that? So... The cold shoulder was because you raised from private individuals, private investors, and then you went to institutional funds. And the individual investors felt like by you raising from funds, they what they weren't invited into the new deals. Is that what the? Yeah. So in their mind, like, you know, they were allocating capital to me and legal finance strategy that was non-correlated and differentiated. And for the last number of years, every deal I did, they would come into. And what I signaled to them was, I'm not taking your money anymore because I don't need it because I have this institutional money. I see. And to them, they're like, shit, what do we do now? I see. Sorry about that. No, you can swear Um, all you want. (laughs) And so uh, I'm like, how are you upset at me for like, this doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah. That's not usually it's, it's, it's impossible to raise money until you do. And then, you know, not taking their money gets, uh, <laughs> is, uh, trippy. It's like the girl in high school that, you yeah. know, won't talk to you until you give her the cold shoulder. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. So you got these institutional funds on board. The investors were a little bit frustrated that you wouldn't take their money. They're early investors. What what aligned for you at that moment? So I, I think you just, you realize right then and there that the system's broken. Like I'm complaining about spending too much time. Then I get sort of screwed with a decent outcome from the institutional world and then the investors are like trying to throw money at you saying like, we don't have the right access. So like that, the system's broken. It's, it's too fragmented. It's inefficient. We, the guys who are supposed to be spending our time finding better investments and doing deals are actually spending too much of our time raising capital. Mm. The people we're raising capital from aren't getting the right experience because they don't have enough places to deploy their capital. I'm like, that system doesn't work. Wait, wait before, you, before you even go on, is, is it fragmented and broken because... there hadn't been a layer of technology introduced because you, you had the way of doing it was going out to dinner and talking to people and, and and that 
in and of itself was getting crusty. Like we, you needed a better way of raising uh, as opposed to individual meetings. I mean, it wasn't a regulatory limit, right? It was, right? Because you didn't have the Jobs Act. And so you didn't have general solicitation. You couldn't even market investment. I see. Yeah. So like you couldn't actually do what Yield Street did pre-2014. Right. So the technology wasn't there to support it. Yeah. All. Everything was slower. You know, you could, if you can't send an email out and you have to meet everyone individually, yeah, I see. You remember the days where you would like Google uh, a hedge fund and, you know, you click their link and basically all that was there was like user access <laughs> yeah. and password and like two lines. Yeah. Like That was a regulatory thing, right? And so they couldn't market themselves at all. And so I would say that was one. The other couple of points I'll make much more brief. You know, my core group of five friends growing up since elementary school, doctor, dentist, lawyer, VC, me. Um, I said to them, Hey guys, like, what are you investing in? And I remember venting about the story and they're like, nothing like we're in the market or whatever. I'm like, what are you making? And they're like, Oh, 4%. And I'm like, dude, like that's ridiculous. We're making like ridic- amazing returns. And I'm like, Hey, if you guys want to put money in, like I'll do you a salad. Like you can put it in, even though like, you know, you don't have to put in like a million, two million bucks. So one of my close friends calls me back the next day. He's like, hey, are you serious? Would you take some money? I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. Like, how much you in? He's like, how's like 20 grand? I'm like, what? No. And in that moment, I realized like, dude, you're living in this ridiculous bubble because your echo chamber, your ecosystem are these ultra high net worth people. Like, this guy's amazing at 27 years old, a dentist. I'm like, yeah, he's got $20,000 to invest. He's got no, no option, zero, nothing to do with it whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I'm like, their whole world is like that, except these tiny one, 1% of 1%. And so that was like a, a switch that went off. And then another one was far more emotional without getting into, you know, all the details. I would say that my parents are immigrants. My dad grew up um, poor in Europe, self-made man, built a business here, followed all the rules, put away a ton of savings, put it into, I probably shouldn't say on a webinar, but you know, one of the major players, 08 comes, the market tanks, you know, kind of gets uncomfortable with that, pulls his cash out. And, you know, you don't recover from that if you don't sort of ride that yeah. cycle. And so, you know, at one point when I was much younger in 2008, I was like, that seems kind of dumb. Why would you do that? I think over the subsequent number of years, as I was getting more and more experienced in investing, I realized very quickly that that's actually what people do, right? They put them in places like Schwab and Fidelity, et cetera, and then you're supposed to feel really good about your retirement. But you weren't actually diversified. And so here you have all these different components that are just showing me how broken the system is. The spark that went off is... When we needed our next sort of nine-figure set of dollars, you saw Lending Club and Prosper and these other players sort of really growing because of 506C. They were targeting retail investors. Lending Club and Prosper, if you remember, actually used to be these P2P platforms where they would sell John's loan to Sally before they went the institutional route. And we used to have this thing in the office that we would say dial for dollars, right? That's how we used to call up the high net worth people. And I was like, why are we doing this dial for dollars? Let's go online. I'm like, holy shit. Like, like, let's go online. And so I think, I think that was the spark. But I think the, you know, the motivation was a confluence of these different experiences that I've had over time, some being emotional and some being practical, where I saw firsthand how the system's inefficiencies really were damaging people's opportunity. Yeah. And I think that the income and opportunity gap that we know exists and widens really only has two ways to solve for it. It's not government handouts. It's not stimulus. Those are a moment in time. Like they'll, they'll get you through your next cycle. It's education and it's opportunity. Give folks the same investment opportunities that billionaires have, family offices and institutions have, and you give them enough time to generate that income and generate that growth, they will get ahead. I don't know of major investment firms. Like I'm talking about the biggest ones that lose money these days. Like they have massive funds that are highly diversified, private equity, private credit, venture. Some do better, some do less better, and some are amazing. You want to try and get into the amazing ones, but at a minimum, get into the next level ones and just generate consistent returns over time. And I think that's what we're about. It's like getting, trying to 
you know, secure access to the best investment product that we can and giving everyone that we can the opportunity to get ahead. Yeah. And to have fun while they do it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that story, especially your your dad having gone through that must have been a a kind of emotional attachment to this problem that rarely founders are presented with. Uh, and I, I certainly see how regulation, I mean, my my belief is that the regulation prior to the Jobs Act, the accredited investor rules saying that if you don't make over 200,000 or whatever the number is, that you, you can't invest in private companies. These things accelerated the, the wage gap or the, the wealth gap, right? If you, can't, and if you can't take on higher risk, like even if you have $10,000 in your bank account or, or $100 in your bank account, if you can't put some percentage of that in high risk, you know, to think you need millions in order to have a diverse portfolio is ridiculous. I think it's just a, a terrible idea that the, the government says people can't invest. You know, the government comes in and says people can't invest their money where they want to unless you have a certain amount of money. It's like almost overtly trying to I- increase that that wealth gap. I, I, I don't know how else to look at it, but it, it does seem to have that effect pretty black and white, right? I mean... I think... Um... I think maybe I could paint a little bit of a different picture for you. Um, I think we have a real problem in our hands. You know, we started off the conversation talking about 60-40 being dead. Hmm. It's a really, it's a real problem, okay? Solving it in some ways is at odds with where regulation is, okay? And I think that's in part why you feel the way you feel. The reality is that if the regulators do their job right, they're going to protect consumers. What does that mean to you when you say protect them? Because I hear block them. I'll explain it, right? Yeah. So I'll I'll explain it. I think the problem is it doesn't feel that way at all. Yeah. Okay. If you could go on and invest in a penny stock or some bullshit scheme at 30 cents a share with the hope of it becoming worth five bucks because some putts called you on the phone. Like Shiba Inu. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> that's a big problem, right? And so we created like this construct that if you have certain types of disclosure or if you're a publicly traded company, then anyone could buy you, accredited or not. To me, like, you know, 80% of the biotech that's publicly traded is a thousand times riskier than anything we've spoken about so far sure. today. And so, yeah, it feels really bad when you tell me that I can invest in things like that, but I can't invest in private equity or private credit with institutional multi-billion dollar managers. Like that doesn't make any sense. And so I think that as consumers, it feels like the regulation is hurting us. And in reality, in many ways it is. And I, and I agree with you on that. I think what I would say to, to maybe be a little, take a little bit of a different position than you I don't think that it's intentionally trying to create inequality. I really don't. Agreed. And, and as frustrating as it is for me, because I'm a founder who started this business because I want to help millions of people get on a road to financial independence. And that would mean offering sort of QP product to non-AIs. Like I want to offer, you know, someone who has 500 bucks the opportunity to invest in a multi-billion dollar manager. And it shouldn't matter to me. Like it's technology. You click 5 right. million, great. You click 500, great. You click 5,000, click I shouldn't care. My goal should be having as many consumers as possible and trying to connect people to the product that's right for them. It shouldn't matter to me how much you put in. And so for me, I'd rather have millions of people on Yield Street than hundreds of thousands. And so I feel the pain as as an owner, as a founder, as an operator. I think the bottom line is what we need to do from a regulatory perspective is get people like myself and other fintech founders to have a closer seat at the regulation table. Because if the incumbents and the biggest banks and the biggest players are constantly setting policy and talking to the regulators and forming their vision, they're never actually going to understand early enough what the disruption is, what our intent is, how we're trying to help people, and actually work with us to create the right solution. The problem is, and, and you see it from a positive perspective in crypto, is 
generally regulators are of the view of we should wait and see how this develops before we rush to change regulation. So sometimes it's really bad, i.e. now you can only sell this product to credit investors. Sometimes it's really cool, i.e. crypto is completely unregulated for the most part and anyone can do anything there. And so we're sort of like, if I would push back at you, you would be like, oh, this is amazing that crypto is not regulated, right? And the reason it's not regulated is because they don't fully understand it yet. They have to wait to see how it evolves. Yeah. So do you see sort of like where the push and pull, the challenge Could, comes in? Couldn't you have a very clear, I feel like the, 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 the pushback people give on crypto regulations is not that it's overbearing, but that it's, it's unclear. You know, if they, if they said, hey, we're going to, you know, describe in detail our stance on, on every different question, but generally we're, we're very hands off. I, I, my view generally is like if people are trying to scam someone, there is an opportunity for the government to get involved. Uh, but it's difficult to institute a sy- system wide or, or society wide rule that doesn't have negative repercussions. And I also view like it takes individuals to lose money and to be ripped off in order for other companies to come and solve those problems. I mean, in, in some ways, like all the transparency tools that are out there in fintech are a result of people not having access to see the right deals, to see who the credit, the, the right traders are, the right companies are to deal with. I mean, every problem is an opportunity just waiting to happen and a business opportunity for someone who can see it and do it. And I don't, I, I'm just really hesitant to draw a conclusion that the government should come in and ban it or, or regulate people out of it because then it, it just, it's like putting stagnation on it. It's like no one can build anything in this space. It's dead. And, you know, the more, the more economic space we kill, you know, the less, less we can grow in. So I don't know. Does that, I'll tell you, I'll say two things on that. One is, so three things. Generally, I agree with you. Not 100%, but if we were sort of a chart, I would trend near you, okay? Um, Two is, I think we also have to question how much of the regulator's view is informed by incumbents who don't want us to disrupt them. Very true. Not sure. Okay, not sure, but I think that's worth a real discussion. Three is the much more fun one. Let's talk about GameStop, Reddit, um, sort of all that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Stimulus, GameStop, Reddit. My view might be very different than others. I think that was unbelievable. It was like uh, watching just a beautiful symphony unfold. <laughs> There's a whole group of folks that say, like, the retail investor is a bunch of idiots. They don't know what they're doing with their money. Okay. And that's like a general thing. We need to protect you. They don't know what they're doing with their money. Um, clearly not true. So you have a group of people numbered in the hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, who collectively together through Reddit and other ways realize that we could force the most sophisticated investors in the market in in a direction that could benefit us. Okay. So like, let that sink yeah, in. So you yeah. have like the I'm, I'm totally with you on this. I think it's fucking amazing. Firms that have shorts and all these positions out mm. and the little idiot right? As other people want to call this group says we could fuck those players. Okay. I really probably shouldn't say that here, but we could fuck those players and you squeeze out the shorts, you push the market in the opposite direction. And you basically show the world a lot of things. One of them being like, we're not idiots. We're not unsophisticated. And when we come collectively together as a group of people, we could do some pretty amazing things. So to me, I think the notion of this investor out there being, quote, stupid or an idiot or not understanding or not sophisticated, I think in, in many ways was proven massively wrong, number one. Number two, the correlation between stimulus checks going out and dollars being put in by retail investors in places like Robinhood is incredibly high. To me, I think that is, that is like so interesting because what it means is that for the first time, the handout didn't go straight to 
Louis Vuitton or BMW or a vacation or something else. And a large contingent of folks said, we're going to pay down our debt, right? Because we know that consumer debt went down. We know that American savings was up more than ever before. So we're going to keep savings in our banks. And we know that retail investing has been the highest it's ever been. So we're going to take risk and invest our dollars. Some people made a bunch of money. Some people lost a bunch of money and other people didn't change much. So what does that tell you? It tells you that people are willing to take risk. It tells you that people are conscious of investing. It tells you that retail people want a seat at the table. They want the opportunity to make money. The rise, the revolution on AMC, like, or GameStop, I love to say this, sorry. I haven't been to GameStop since my bar mitzvah. Yeah. Who has? Yeah, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. It's a terrible store. Nobody cares, right? So what, what were we saying? We were saying that we want a seat at the table. It's not just the hedge funds. It's not just the shorts that are going to get to make money. I want to make money too. I want opportunity also. And so I think the rise of the retail revolution is something that we're seeing in front of our eyes. And I do believe that regulators are paying attention. I think the way you know that in a positive perspective is that Gensler came out very clearly saying, I don't believe there was market manipulation. Yeah. And I believe that it was scary for a few moments. To me, that's an acknowledgement of understanding that the retail dynamic is changing how we think about making investments. And that's really powerful. And in some ways, that's right where sort of Yield Street and other folks are slotting in is saying, like, we want to be able to provide you a better quality investment experience than you currently have available to you because we know that's something that's important to you. We know that you want to see at the table. We know that you want to be more engaged with your money. We know that you want your money to work harder for you, and we're going to help build that. And I think there's a whole host of solutions coming out. Yeah, yeah. It feels like, I mean, if I almost distill this down to what what is happening, it's the consolidation of energy or money or currency is power. So hedge funds consolidate money. They make investment decisions. They have influence or power because of that. The retail investor is dumb, not because they're intellectually low IQ, but because they're just acting as an individual. So when there's no collective uh, investment strategy, which is most of retail investment, then that's the the answer. But when people get on Reddit and you have a communication barrier breakdown, and now Reddit is now effectively acting as like a an aligned investment strategy, then it's like pushing back against the the hedge funds, which to your point is fair play. I mean, it's the evolution of of retail investing. And Yield Street falls, you know, in line with that. You're not Reddit, obviously, but you're acting along the same construct that Reddit would be and that you're aligning a bunch of individual retail investors and allowing them to you know make decisions. I, I, I'm pretty split. I, the one thing I don't know if I, I haven't been able to find out if I disagree with you on anything, but I do, I am pretty skeptical about government handouts. I think, I think it's kind of like this. I haven't thought about this a lot, but I think corruption in government is necessary and good if it's very small it you know because there's why do people fight super hard to get into positions of power so they can exploit that for their own benefit and that might be dinners it might be you know a nice car it might be there's some sort of sweetener to the deal but if it's it it could be very small ego is a huge part of it it could literally just be attention but even with that comes gifts and perks I think the same thing happens uh, in the U.S. U.S. as a nation in position to other countries. We've effectively owned the U.S. the the standard currency or the stable coin for the world. And when you're in that position, you you want to benefit your own citizens over other citizens. So, like when we do the stimulus package, we're not giving it to everyone in the world who has U.S. dollar. We're just giving it to American citizens. And there is where the temptation is to go overboard and to say, Hey, we're just going to go so far on the stimulus package that other people are going to drop the U S dollar. And I see that as a pretty big risk. I don't know if you do as well or if if it will play out that way, but that's the, the trap I feel like. Does that make sense? I'm not, I'm not sure. What, I guess I'm not sure what that was. Yeah, in the sense that, do I agree? Do I disagree? Well, my point is like, no stimulus as a concept. No. Yes or no? No, no. I'm on the fence. Yeah, you don't agree. It should have, have happened that. at stimulus all. Stimulus as a concept, I I do not think it should be something that we resort to. 
I think that the first, primarily yeah. the first stimulus package was absolutely critical. Um, I think we have a short-term memory, so sort of go back in your memory if you can, second to last week of March 2020, market slipping 30 points, you're being told to go home by work for the first time, you're starting to, I mean, I'm in New York, I don't know, you know, if the whole world saw this, but you're starting to see images within two, three weeks of refrigeration trucks lined up outside hospitals. Um, talk of exorbitant numbers of deaths occurring, bodies being lined up in refrigeration trucks. I live on Long Island, about 10 minutes from JFK, so we're near the flight path. Haven't seen a plane fly over my house in two weeks. They're usually every nine minutes. Um, we can keep playing it out, right? That was a really, really, really dark time, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so, extreme. Yeah. If you had no stimulus, you would. I could see a world in which there's a brink of civil war. Listen, the average, the average person in America had 500 bucks yeah. or less in savings. Like, let that sink in, right? So you get fired, you're staying home, you can't buy food. Yeah. So there, there, there was no, like, mortgage payments are getting defaulted, court systems are chaos. Like, just sort of play this whole thing out, right? This isn't just a financial issue. This is like a full-blown meltdown. Yeah. I think what the government did correctly at, in the first instance, certainly— is it restored sort of peace, calm, and tranquility in the country by saying, like, we're not letting it go to shit. We understand free markets are important. This is something new that we've never dealt with before. We need to instill safety and security and comfort and empathy in the, in the hands and eyes and pockets of the American people. And we are here for you as a government is supposed to be. Like, you pay taxes to know that your government will take care of you. I'm good with all that. I think it was important. I think the markets needed stability. I think companies needed to feel comfortable to keep their employees in place so that people can live. I think over time, it got incredibly politicized. Like at the end of the day, you know, even people talk about this new variant now. If it's true that this new variant is going to come and it is going to have, you know, negative repercussions and be a force to be reckoned with, my personal opinion is we need to care about the safety of our families and our employees and the people and human beings in general. But what's also clear is that it's a reality that it's not going away. It's going to continue to mutate and manifest itself in new strains and new ways over time. And just printing cash and running home every time is not a way to live. And so we need to get with the program, so to speak. And so I think similarly in the stimulus, yeah. there was a time and a place where we needed to to introduce that to the market for the reasons we discussed. And there's a time and a place to say, okay, now it's time to, to go back to normal. When you when you go to hotels and grocery stops and sort of places where they have a lot of minimum or close to minimum wage jobs, and the reason that they can't get people to come in is because they're opting to take stimulus at home, like, no, that that that's bad in every possible way. Yeah. 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 I totally agree. Yeah. And that became pretty clear. Uh, yeah, I very much agree with you. I, I, I think you described the situation well, and it kind of is a miracle that it actually didn't get worse than it, it could have been. Uh, so Michael, really, man, I really enjoyed your perspective on things. Uh, clearly you're super knowledgeable in the space. So thank you for bestowing your wisdom upon me and the listeners. Um, Congrats on everything with with uh, Yield Street. If, if there is a place that people can reach you, uh, are you available on, online? Do you do social media, um, yep, Twitter? I am on any LinkedIn. Others? I'm on Twitter, Weiss M. Um, email me, go to yieldstreet.com. Love to get perspective from different people. Um, go Blue just became the official sponsor of New York Giants. And um, hopefully we'll help them win a couple more games than they're used to. And listen, I think that, you know, everybody out there who's listening should come to Yield Street, should look at it. I think we can help you 
really modernize your portfolio in a way that's going to make a real difference. Um, but irrespective, if you come to us or go elsewhere, I think you got to start to ask yourself that question every day. Does my money work as hard for me as I do for it? And if the answer is no, you know, you got to go figure that out. Yeah, dig it. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. Good Appreciate stuff, it. man. Well, thanks again. Wish you guys care. all the best. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you.